O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You indeed have set your glory above the heavens. You have revealed yourself through creation, through your word, and most pointedly through your son, Jesus Christ, to mankind. You've shown yourself as the holy God, the one and only God. You've shown your goodness and your love, and you've manifest your glory from the beginning. We ask you, Father, to be gracious with us this morning and show yourself to us. Let us be a people who see you rightly according to your word. Give us an understanding and a joy in the love that you've revealed through creation and through Christ and the cross. Manifest your glory here in our hearts and minds that we might be a people who reflect it back to you and to one another. We ask, Lord, that you would let your light shine here in this place by your Holy Spirit. We ask that you would do a work on us, that we might be a people who faithfully love and serve you all of our days. We desire to know that you are our God. We desire to know this morning that you are our creator, and we desire to see your goodness. We ask that you would do that this morning, Lord. Pour out a blessing that we might come into your presence and worship you as you rightly deserve to be worshipped. I pray you would cast out all the, the thoughts and the distractions that occupy us this morning. I pray, Lord, you would give us strength to overcome the tiredness that we may have this morning. And that you would enable us to hear you speak. We want to hear you speak. For we know that there is power in your words to change souls that have been darkened by sin. Do that this morning, Father. That you might be manifest and glorified here amongst your people in this place. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Good morning. So it's a strange Sundays to preach whenever we move our clocks around a little bit. Um, if you find yourself struggling because you're a little tired this morning, do not be shy. Get up. Walk around. Sometimes that'll help. The important thing is that we hear the Word of God this morning, that we're able to respond to Him correctly. We want to be shaped by Him, so um, do not be embarrassed at all. I know sometimes it is difficult when you're sedentary listening to someone talk. Stay awake. Um, but it's important that you do. Uh, this message is for you. It is God's Word, and by His grace, it will have its right impact on you. Um, I had a chance to, we were coming down the hill this morning, and um, up on the summit, looking onto San Jose, it was all fogged in, and it was, it, was a, it was beautiful because the sun was coming up, and the fog was resting upon the valley floor, and I get a, I get a chance to teach and preach this morning on creation, and it was God being so gracious, I'm just going to give you a little taste and a little glimpse to see what you're going to be talking about this morning. It was truly awe-inspiring. In fact, Joshua looked back, and he was able to see Monterey. It was so clear that he could see all the way on the other side of the bay. Um, we have spent now 10 weeks uh, in a series on serving the Lord, and my hope is that we can build upon that to become the type of servants that God wants us to be. We, we looked principally at what it means to be a servant, what that looks like practically in our lives as God's people. We had a chance to look at what the motivation 
of that servanthood is. Um, so I, I want us to ask why, why would I and why would Pastor Kurt bring a message of service to the members here at Cambrian Park Baptist? Is it because you are lazy and you need a rebuke? Is it because there's so much work to do and there's so few workers? Or is it to fulfill our purpose on earth? The Westminster Catechism says that our purpose in life is to what? It's to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. So if that is our purpose, when, when do we do that best? When are we best at worshiping God, glorifying God, and enjoying God? Is it not when His glory and His love is most real to us? Is our service to the Lord not greatest when we get an understanding of who this glorious God is and the love that He has shown us, not only in creation, but more importantly, through His Son, Jesus Christ? That is when we serve best. And so my desire and my hope is that over the next several weeks, as we look at the love and the glory of God, the, the series will be called For Love and Glory. And my son said, that sounds like a battle cry, for glory and honor. It's close, for love and glory. And you can take it as a battle cry. My hope is that over the next several weeks, as we look at several passages of Scripture, starting in Genesis and moving our way through, that we will be so captivated by this God whom we serve, so enthralled by His glory, so taken by His love, that you will find yourself serving as a faithful servant that we've talked about for the past 10 weeks that this will cultivate in you a desire for radical obedience, radical holiness, so that your life, lived out in a fallen world, will bring honor and glory to the Father. It was Jesus who said, let your light shine before men in such a way that they will see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. And that's what we want to desire. We want that glory going to God. So I'd like to spend the next few weeks doing that looking at the love and the glory of God that He cultivates in our hearts, that He makes known to us so that our love for Him and our desire to glorify Him grows exponentially. And we find ourselves as these servants so described, faithful servants, joyful servants, servants who fervently strive for the love and the glory of God in acts of radical obedience that bring all glory and honor to Him. So where would you begin something like this? It makes sense to begin in Genesis chapter 1. It makes sense to begin at verse 1. Now, don't get terrified. I'm not going to do, we're not going to do a biblical theology starting in chapter 1, verse 1 of Genesis, and work our way through. We would never end. We would never finish it. But we are going to be, begin here because we see God first revealing Himself, His glory and His love in creation. We see it in Genesis chapter 1. And I want you this morning, I... So many of you have, have read or heard sermons or teaching on these verses. I don't, I don't want you to have the complacency of, of familiarity be a problem. I want you to be struck this morning. I want you to be awe-inspired at this creator God whom we serve. I want you to be captivated by his love because that will change you. So three things I want to look at this morning. God as God, God as creator, and God as good. I want us to see that God is our God, that He is our Creator, and that He is so, so good. He is such a good God, and He's such a good Creator. If you know Him, and the more you know Him, the more you'll want to serve. 
You will say like Isaiah did before the throne, Lord, send me. I don't care what the work is. Just send me. I want to serve you because of your love and your glory. Can we do that? Can we take the next few minutes then looking at that? All right. God as God. Uh, Look at verse 1. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. If you cannot find this verse in your Bible, you're in trouble. If you can't get to Genesis, Genesis is the first book in the Bible. Verse 1 is the first verse in the first chapter. So Genesis 1-1. I know that was mean, huh? I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Okay. In the beginning, God. You say, no, no, no. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Let's just start with that. In the beginning, God. The opening verse of the entire Bible begins with God introducing himself and confronting mankind with who he is. Elohim is the word here used in Genesis 1.1. The living, active, all-powerful creator God. And he starts off intentionally saying, "This I'm going to introduce myself, God, in the beginning, God, in the beginning, Elohim, because I want you to know the entire Bible from beginning to end is about me. That's what he wants us to know. We open the Bible and we, we, we read it and we want to get something out of it for ourselves and that's good and that's glorious. But the Bible's not about you. The Bible's not about mankind. The Bible's not about angels or demons or heaven or hell. The Bible is about Elohim, Yahweh, God. And so he begins by saying, here I am. And he must begin there because before anything ever was, There was only God. He is the creator, as we say in the creed, of all that is seen and all that is unseen. He is the author of redemptive history. He is the hero in every Bible story. He's the hero. He's the centerpiece in the entire narrative. We play a role. Some of us think we play a more significant role than we ought. We do play a role. Mankind has a part in this grand narrative of God. But we are not the leading character. God is the leading character. And he establishes himself rightly, not as an it, not as a thing, not as an impersonal cosmic force, but as a living, personal being with a mind and a will and the power, listen, to create, sustain, oversee, and engage a most magnificent creation. And the creation is magnificent. He is the creator, he is the sustainer, and he is the one engaging. He alone is Elohim. Elohim in the Hebrew, in this verse, chapter 1, verse 1, it is in the plural. Now we know from the New Testament why it's in the plural. Because God is one, but he has three eternally distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So when he says, when we read here, in the beginning God, this is in the beginning God of the Trinity. In the beginning God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all there before anything ever was. Always there. One God. The great I am as he revealed himself to Moses in Exodus chapter 3, verse 13. The one who has always been the great I am in the beginning, before time, before the universe, before all the stars and the planets, before the earth and the living creatures, there was only God, only God forever and ever. Elohim, Yahweh, God. Now as a people and a culture that lives in the wake of Charles Darwin, oftentimes the real message of the creation story gets horribly convoluted and distorted in dialogues about creation versus evolution, or old earth 
and new earth. Those are dialogues we want to engage in. Those are truths that we want to work on as we, we make our way through sacred scripture. But he doesn't begin Genesis 1-1 introducing himself to defeat Darwin. He begins introducing himself to his people that we might know him. He wants us to know him. Jesus Christ said to know him, the only true God, and to know Christ is what? It's to have eternal life. And so he begins this grand narrative so we don't miss it, as so many do today. How did I get here? What is my purpose? Where am I going to go? He reveals himself as God from the very first words to establish his sovereign authority over all things. He is God. And this is, my beloved, a necessary worldview. You must know God as God, or you cannot live life as God has prescribed and ordained you to live. Because what you think about God, whatever your theology is, your perspective of God or no God determines how you live out your life. Everything is shaped by your theology. I'll give you an example. If I were an evolutionist, I would believe that matter is eternal, not God. I would look upon reality and all things from that perspective. And therefore, my thinking about love, marriage, my understanding of of children, why I have children, my understanding of work or play, how I use my money, would all be shaped upon this perspective that matter is eternal and there is no God. Now, if there's no God, then there are no eternal laws of right and wrong. If there's no God, there's no hope of life after death. If there is no God, and I was not created by a magnificent creator, then I am nothing more than a cosmic accident, a product of blind luck, random chance, point, mutation. No God, no laws, no God, no life after death, no God, no eternal purpose. If there is no eternal God, there can be no eternal purpose, and that means living for eternity or trying to understand heaven or hell. They cannot even be considered without an understanding of who God is. It means that I won't believe in an eternal judgment, and it means that I will miss an eternity being in the presence and enjoying God, my Creator, forever if I do not know Him. I would live my whole life as I saw fit because there's no purpose. I'm here by chance, and I die by chance. Not knowing God and not believing in God. That's why he starts in Genesis 1, 1, says in the beginning, God means that everything will be shaped by a lie. And evolutionary theory is a lie. But if Genesis 1, 1 is true, and before anything ever existed, including matter and time and energy, there was only an all-knowing, all-powerful, infinitely good God, then our entire lives now will be understood and shaped by that single truth. And discussions about heaven or hell or right or wrong or what your purpose is in life, they can actually be engaged in and understood because there is a God who created you. Questions like, where did I come from? And why am I here? And where am I going? They can be asked and they can be answered in light of what God has said according to his sacred word. And therefore, our understanding of everything, the universe, the family, marriage, children, work, play, how to spend your money, would be established as God has so revealed in his word. That means we don't have to thrash about. We don't have to be like the culture 
putting our faith in an unsubstantiated pseudoscientific theory of survival of the fittest or random point mutation or punctuated equilibrium theory, things that we come up with to try to justify an existence without God. And yet God answered that question in the very beginning. In Genesis 1, chapter 1, you have to read one verse and you get what? God is God. Most people can understand that. This is not an intellectual problem. This is a heart problem. We don't want God to be God because we want to be God. To live as as though such a magnificent creator does not exist when in fact he does, or to listen to or to worship false gods as so many do, it is infinitely grievous and we would argue insane. Absolutely insane. If, for example, you meet a five-year-old and that five-year-old denies the existence of his own parents, you would find that dialogue a bit odd. He believes that he just appeared randomly one day by chance, and therefore he refused to acknowledge his parents, his mom and dad, as being his parents. He refused to listen to them. He refused to be cared for by them. He refused to be disciplined by them. He refused to be loved by them. Now, if you met a five-year-old like this, I imagine you would go to great measures to try to explain to this young man or this young woman that, in fact, he does have parents and that he should listen to them and he should be loved by them. What if that same five-year-old had another problem and he thought he had parents, but he didn't recognize his own parents. He thought they were the neighbors next door or he thought that his parents were his teachers or maybe the local gang down the street. And he went to them for love and for nurture, to be nurtured and for instruction in how to live life. You would be concerned for a child like this. And I would argue you would seek to do something, anything to bring clarity and truth. Now, this is grievous at a familial level with a five-year-old as an example. How much more so at the cosmic level when all mankind begins life rejecting God as creator? All mankind. We reject him as our father. We reject him as being God. The Bible says this is how we start, that we begin life dead in our sins and transgressions, rejecting God as God. Romans chapter 3, Paul said, there is no one who understands, speaking of all humanity, there is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good. Ever since Adam and Eve turned from God in the garden, we find ourselves turning from him and rejecting him just like the five-year-old. Turning to false gods for love and for nurturing and for instruction. And many today, especially in the West, denying that he exists altogether, saying that there is no God. But to deny him or to give our love or allegiance to a false God does not negate who he is. To, for you to not rightly believe who God is does not change who God is. He has always been. God is God. He is the preexistent, preeminent, great I am, worthy of being worshipped and glorified and honored and loved and served by his creation, all of his creation, forever and ever. Amen? Amen. All right, so I want you to, I want you to capture a glimpse of the glorious nature of God being God, and I want you, number two, to catch a glimpse of the glorious love as his, of him being our creator. Look at verse one again. In the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. I like how 
Bruce Walke put it in his book. Listen to this. Darkness, water, wind. The curtain goes up on a darkened stage. A voice is heard. Then a brilliant light blankets the landscape and dazzles the eyes. The cosmic drama of salvation history opens with an awe-inspiring display of theatrics. The palpable excitement and anticipation is pregnant in the text, available to all. It's amazing to me, living in this post-Darwinian age, how we neglect to go back to Genesis chapter 1 and be thoroughly captivated by the work of God speaking creation into being. God interrupted the chaos and he brought forth the cosmos. He interrupted the chaos and the darkness, and he brought harmony and creation and order and beauty through energy and time and matter and life. In fact, the rest of Genesis chapter 1 describes this in magnificent detail. He gives a summary of creation, how God, in six literal days, by only speaking, brought all that is seen and unseen into being out of nothing. He said, let there be light, and there was light. He created night and day. He created the earth and the sky. He made the land and the sea, all vegetation, all plants, all fruit-bearing trees. He created the sun and the moon and the stars and the galaxies. He created every living creature, the swarms of living creatures in the ocean, the birds of the air, And every single creature that moves along the face of the earth, God made. And then his crowning work, we're told in Genesis 1.27, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female, he created them. Did you notice the triple emphasis on creation? God three times makes it known that he created man that we are not here by chance. You are not a cosmic accident. You are not a product of random chance. God made you. He says, God created man once. God created a man in his own image twice. God created a man male and female three times. Are we that dense? Yes, we are. That's why we believe in false gods, and that's why we walk around many today saying there is no God at all. That has to be one of the most foolish statements any man can make in light of what we know to be true according to the word of God. He brought Adam and Eve into being. He gave them form and substance, flesh and bone, blood and souls, and he did it out of nothing. We call this ex nihilo, that God created from nothing. There was nothing, and then God spoke and there was something. That's a miraculous power. If any man stood before you today and there was nothing and he spoke and there was something, I dare say you would be tempted to bow down to that man. You'd be tempted to worship someone so powerful who can make something out of nothing. And I mean nothing. There was only God. There was only darkness. No sun, no moon. Before the earth and the sky, nothing but God. Before all the animals and all the trees and all the glorious aspects of creation, only God he made from nothing. And then this glorious, infinite, powerful creature decided that he would speak, and then he speaks, and things come to be. He just speaks. Everything that we know, and probably an infinitely more that we don't know, Not yet, you will, you come into his glory. 
he brought forth. He is the magnificent creator. He is the maker. He is the maker. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 3, it says, by faith we understand this. You say, why, doesn't, why don't people believe this? Because it takes faith to believe this. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. It doesn't get any more clear than that. You can't start with an eternal matter and a big bang and movement of energy and matter and time and think something will come to be. The thought is utterly foolish. I remember when my children were young and we were doing homeschooling and they were raised in the church and we would teach them evolutionary theory and the doctrines of secular uh, humanism and they, they would look at you like you were mad. And they would say, who would ever believe that all of this could come from nothing? You said, exactly, you got it. That's why it's hard to convince a young person of the truth of that theory or all the theories that encompass some type of random chance process. Making something, anything like this requires God. I mean, when you look around, creation testifies to God as maker. Last Christmas, Joshua and I had the incredible blessing of building a headboard for my wife. Something that some people said, oh, that, that was beautiful what you created. And, and I understand the sense of that phrase. In an artistic sense, we did create something. But in a biblical sense, we didn't create anything, right? Whereas God created from nothing, Joshua and I had to go to Home Depot, right? We had to make a list. We had to buy wood. We had to buy glue. We had to buy nails. We had to buy stain. I had to buy tack cloth. And then we had to go home with all the product, and we had to break out our tools and workbenches, and we spent two days with material and tools, and we put together a headboard. Instead of creation, we would say manipulation. We engaged in artistic manipulation, and we took the elements that God had made, and we refashioned them into a headboard. Neither Joshua nor I could simply speak and say, headboard, and see a headboard. In fact, if we went out in the garage and we tried to do that, and people saw us, they might make a phone call or two. We don't have that power because we are not God. God has that power because He is. He has the power to speak, and things come into being, and not just things, miraculous things. The heavens and the earth, the galaxies, angels fish and animals and human beings so radically incredible by this one being speaking. It's so magnificent and so awe-inspiring. It is sufficient, listen, it is sufficient to cause us to fall down and worship this God. A power when understood, and I would argue when just touched on, is sufficient to cultivate in the heart of man worship and praise and adoration of this creator God. And therefore, my friends, listen, for all, those, for all those who cannot speak headboards into existence but think they can, for all those who reject God as God and deny his existence or have put their faith in a false God, in a God that did not create when the creator God has been clearly revealed in his creation for all those who do that and then die in that state, the Bible says there is only judgment and there will be no excuse 
because the creation testifies to the glory and goodness of God. I'll read to you from Romans chapter 1. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness and ungodliness of men who by their unrighteousness, listen to this, they suppress the truth. They press it down. They know. He says in verse 19, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they, those who reject God, are what? They are without excuse. The testimony begins in Genesis 1.1 of God the creator, God the powerful, God the good. And we look around and we see everywhere creation testify this morning that that fog bank over San Jose and Santa Clara Valley testified, that glorious sunrise testifies. You sitting here with your eyes looking at me and your ears functioning and your brain working testifies to this God. We are without excuse. No one will come before God on that day and say, I did not know. We all know. But if we reject, we suppress that truth in our own unrighteousness. Creation testifies to his eternal power and his divine nature. And certainly we can see it when we, when we juxtapose it to our limited power and our sinful natures. The contrast could not be greater. We're told that this one and only all-powerful living God, look at verse 31, he saw everything that he had made You say, I love that because he talks about it being very good. We'll get there. But first notice, he's the one that made it. God himself, the creator, made creation. He didn't have an angel make it. He didn't have a demagogue make it as the Greeks used to believe. He actually made it. God made. He got down and dirty with his own hands and he created all that we know. He has an intimate relationship with his creation because he's the creator. There's a personal characteristic in his creation reflecting who he is. Michelangelo supposedly rejoiced in the 16th chapel when he finished. Beethoven certainly rejoiced in the 5th symphony. William Lamb rejoiced when he finished the Empire State Building. How much more so God rejoicing over his creation His creation, this world, the galaxy, the universe, and those redeemed by Christ, his people. How much more so the creator glorifying and rejoicing in his creation. He made it. He made it. And as our personal creator, therefore, he has every right, every right to direct us, to teach us, to call us, to rejoice in us, to love us, to judge us. He's our creator. Absolutely sovereign over your life. And this, is, this really is the greatest problem that we have, isn't it? We don't like the thought that one, we were created, and two, we were created by someone who has absolute sovereignty over our lives. And yet, deep down, we know that's true. I've read stories of how Steve Jobs, the co-founder of Apple, would sometimes fire people in elevators. Did you know that? He would enter an elevator and he'd have a dialogue with an employee and if that dialogue was not satisfying, it was not uncommon that that employee would be terminated by the time they got to their floor. It became a running joke that if you wanted to keep your job, you didn't get in an elevator with Steve. 
Now, as grievous as this behavior sounds to us and may in well deed be, we understand his right as co-founder to hire and fire those who work for him. We understand that. How much more so God over his creation? How much more so a God who holds everything together? How much more so the one who wrote the code, the DNA that runs through your blood right now? The one who sewed your flesh together in your mother's womb. The one who brought you into being that put air into your lungs and a soul into your flesh. The very God who sustains every fiber of your being, every atom right now in your body, keeping you in that chair so you don't melt down. The one who sustains the galaxy and sustains the universe. How much more so does this God have sovereign authority over every aspect of our life? And only in rebellion do we say no. Only in foolishness do we reject God or turn to a false God who will appease our sin. As our creator, he is the master over all people, all events, all nations, children, marriages, life, and death. We belong to him. Psalm 24, 1, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. All things exist, according to Hebrews 2.10, for him and by him. Those are definitive statements. For him and by him, we exist. And therefore, my beloved, as our creator, his laws, as he so decreed, they apply. They apply to the life of his creation. It's his design. And to move against his design only brings catastrophic results in the life of the the rebel, both destructive and foolish Parents, I don't know if you've ever had tried to assemble something for your eight-year-old at Christmas time that had an instruction manual but looked like your Bible, and it's Christmas Eve, and you thought to yourself, I don't have time for this, so you begin, you set the instruction manual aside, and you begin to tackle this multi-piece project, and you're about a quarter of the way into it, and for some reason, parts are missing, but of course they're not, and some reason, parts aren't fitting together, but of course they should be. And you realize you have to double back again and grab the manual to figure out how to put it together. I had the blessing recently of putting together a a gun with a friend of mine. And I have assembled a handful of these already. But I thought it would be wise that we go to YouTube and pull up the instructions again that I might see it. So we didn't screw up his gun. My beloved, the Bible, amongst other things, is an instruction manual for your life. It's the instruction manual you don't want to toss aside. It's God's design for us and how we relate to him, how we relate to one another, how we engage in the creation that he made. The Bible tells us everything that we need for godliness and life. It tells us how to work. It tells us how to play. You know, the Bible tells you how to play. It tells you how to earn money and how to save money and how to spend money. It tells you how to engage in a godly marriage. It tells you how to raise your children. It tells you how to do church. It tells you how to serve. It tells you how to be a people that live for others and bring God glory in the process. This book that we read and that we preach from and that we teach from takes the chaos and makes it into a cosmos. It takes the darkness and it brings light. 
and when we, we strive by the Holy Spirit to live our lives in accordance with the Word of God, we find harmony. We find harmony in our relationship with God, and we find harmony in our relationship with one another, and even with creation. He's the maker. And so if he tells us how to live, we ought to listen to our maker. Because when we do, we will see the glory and we will see the love and we will see how much our lives are lived out in accordance with their direct purpose to glorify God and enjoy him forever. It's amazing to me after so many years pastoring, continuing to bring the word of God to people's lives, and then when they submit to it, there's, there's a still a sense of shock and awe so, well, I, I did what it said and it worked, like it was some magical recipe, but it's not. It, it's telling you, as someone creating the image of God, how you're supposed to live. And it's right because the maker who made you wrote it. It's his word. Now, some of you may struggle with this entire message. God is God. God is a creator. And, and I'm calling you to be captivated by the glory and love of this God as God and the glory and love of this God as creator. And some of you may say, you know, I need to pause here because when I look upon this world, you're telling me to to know him and to love him, to worship him. You're telling me to listen to his word, but I look upon creation. And if what you're saying is true, if he is sovereign and he is the creator of everything that I can see and all those things that I don't see, if that's true then he's made a mess of this world. This place is not good. We look upon the world and we see pain, we see suffering, we see racism, we see political corruption, we see unjust wars. And we say, all right, if he's sovereign and he's creator and he's the maker of the heavens and the earth and this is what he has made, then he's not worthy of being worshipped. He's certainly not worthy of being served. And he's not worthy of listening to whatever he had to say in that book you call the Bible. Because my life is not good. And much of what I see in the world is not good. And if he's creator, he's at least in part responsible. How many of you have heard that objection before? Don't dismiss that. That's a valid thought, right? Someone's thinking. They're trying to make sense of God being creator and this world being fallen. Last point, God as good. Look at verse 31. Actually, we'll do verse 1 and 31 again. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Verse 31, and God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good, and there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. So the end of the sixth day, the end of the 24-hour period of each day, God looks upon his creation, all that he had made, and he says, very good. You say, well, is that it? Very good? I mean, can't it be excellent? Can't it be outstanding? I would not be pleased with very good on a report card. Very good's a B plus, right? I want excellent, which is an A. Is this the best that we can do? The language does not serve us well here. The word in the Hebrew is tob for good. And they say meho tob, which is very good, which is analogous to being without flaw. So it would be the same as God saying, The creation that I have made and the means by which it is operating, he's looking at what he made and how it's now acting in harmony with itself and with him. He's saying it is perfect. No flaw, without blemish, no problem, no sin, no darkness. Everything 
The sun, he looked, the sun was shining. The trees were producing fruit. The fish were swimming as fish are supposed to swim. And mankind, his greatest creation, was walking rightly with him. Mankind was relating with him correctly. Mankind was relating with one another correctly. Mankind was relating with creation correctly. Remember, all the animals came before Adam, and he named each one because there was harmony. God's kingdom was without flaw, and it, was, it knew him, and he knew it. And as creator, I would argue he's the only one who has authority to evaluate his own creation. If we go back and we say it wasn't very good, then we are arguing against the one who made it. He has all the authority. The creator can say, this is very good. Not even the angels dared come up to him and critique him and say, no, it's all right. You could have done a little better. And yet they had, what a vantage point they had to see creation come into being. How much more so are we in danger of going against a holy God by critiquing his original work. And when we do, my beloved, listen, when we do, when we look upon creation and we see rightly something's desperately wrong and there is something desperately wrong with the way the world is today and we blame God for it, are we not acknowledging that there is a way that things are supposed to be? Are we not with our very mouths when we say that God did not create well, saying that there has to be a way that it's supposed to be? That there, there must be at some point in time a God who made something very good in order for there to be something very bad? I mean, how do we know this? How do our consciences testify that things aren't the way that they're supposed to be? My beloved, listen, if there is no God, if there is no God, you cannot make that statement. If there is no God, you cannot talk about something being right or wrong or good or bad eternally or ultimately. How can we know something is wrong and needs to be restored if there was no beginning and there was no God and there was no very good? Can't talk about restoration unless there was something to restore it to. And that means even our questioning and our critiquing reveal God as creator and God's creation being very good in the beginning. Testifies to that. The current state of fallen creation, we will not deny, but we will not blame God. When God made the heavens and the earth, it was very good. When man sinned against God in the garden, and we have perpetuated that sin from the garden to this present hour, we are the ones who made it bad, not God. The blame does not belong upon God's footsteps. It belongs with us. All the pain, all the disease, all the conflict, all the the hardship that you've suffered in your life, all the injustice that you've experienced, when we, when we read the news or we look at what's going on throughout the world, all of that is a product of our doing. Paul said in Romans 8, the creation was subjected to futility. The creation was subjected to sin by Adam and Eve. And then he said in verse 22, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. All of creation desires to be set free from sin, not just mankind. All of creation. Now we are subject to it. And there's an eternal condemnation for it apart from being saved by grace through faith in Christ. But all of creation suffers sin that's made its way into God's very good, harmonious creation. 
For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, and not only the creation, but we ourselves. The goodness of God's creation has been spoiled by sin, and it's left man at enmity with God, at enmity with himself, and at enmity with creation. That's why there's so much disharmony. We've taken the great cosmos, the great harmonious creation that God made, and we brought chaos back in. We brought darkness back in. You say, well, what hope is there then? What hope is there for me of ever seeing the love and glory of God? What hope is there of me ever serving God faithfully as you've called us to do these past several weeks? If there's only chaos... How can I possibly be obedient to this God whom I am supposedly at enmity with? You know the answer, of course. It is Christ. Jesus Christ becomes the answer. God's glory is revealed to, creation, to, to us through his creation as being a glorious God. He's, his love is revealed to us in the creation that he made being very good. But the consummation of his love and his glory is revealed most to mankind upon the cross where we see glory and love commingled in the broken body and spilled blood of his son, Jesus Christ. You see, God the Father was not satisfied with his creation being ruined. We ruined it, our responsibility. But God was not going to have his creation remain in disharmony for all eternity. God the Father, by grace, took action. And he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to make right the mess that we made. The first Adam made a mess We've continued in that mess, so God sent the second Adam to do what? To bring about a new creation, a recreation, as the Bible says, to make all things new, to bring you, sons and daughters, back into the kingdom, to bring restoration to this broken place. I'm so thankful that God would not tolerate his disharmony and his chaos that he desired to make things right, and that he will bring us into that glorious new creation through grace and through faith. He sent Christ to do the unthinkable, and that was reverse the curse, to overcome the sin that made its way into the world through us. He did that so that the creation, this is from Romans 8, 21, that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So Jesus Christ paid for your sins in full upon the cross to release you from the bondage that that sin has upon you and that consequence of eternal death and judgment for you to release you from that and set you free to bring you into the glory and the love of God the Father. We know this. Sin came in and a barrier was created. We can't have the glory of God. We can't have the love of God. And so Christ came to reverse that curse. And in his death upon the cross, he did that great work. And by grace, through faith, by you believing and trusting in Jesus Christ, you can be brought back in, repenting of your sins and turning to the Holy One and seeking forgiveness and being forgiven. God will bring you back in and he'll show you his glory and he will show you his love and he will give you a motivation, and a purpose in life that will redefine how you live this very day. Christ did the work to bring us back, and it's pure grace. That's the glorious news that we have of the gospel, that Christ did this work for people so unworthy. Grace is unmerited favor being shown upon you. You do not deserve to be saved. 
what we rightly deserve, we do not want. What we rightly deserve is to come before God and be judged and eternally condemned. But what God gives us instead through Christ is glory and love and life. This should produce humility. I believe a lifelong humility in our lives. We should be changed by this great work of our creator in our lives. Knowing God as creator and knowing him as redeemer ought to humble us radically. Before God in his goodness brought you into creation, you were mathematically and you were metaphysically nothing. Do you know that? In order for you to be, God had to make you. And that means without God as your creator and without Jesus Christ as your redeemer, you would be exactly nothing. That should produce humility in our hearts and minds for this creator, redeemer, God. It should produce gratitude, I believe, as well, a product of our knowing and living in accordance with the truth of the word of God should make us so grateful. Why why did God create you? He, He didn't need to create you. He doesn't need to create you to be glorified. He was already glorified himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in the Trinity. He didn't need to create you to be loved. He was already infinitely loved in the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit for all eternity. So God created you to magnify his love and pour out his glory upon you through his son, Jesus Christ. He created you to have you engage in this triune glory-love exchange for all eternity. That should produce in us a grateful heart. Humility because he created us, a gratitude because he redeemed us and brought us all the way in through Jesus Christ. And I believe fundamentally, at its most basic level, an understanding of God as God, God as creator, and God as good will produce in us worship, a right adoration of who this God is. In fact, I I would go so far as to say the deepest grounding for our gathering this morning and singing to God and praying to God and have you hear me proclaim the gospel and us taking communion is the fact that God is our creator and he is the one who has redeemed us. There's no better reason to worship than to see God as God and your redeemer through the sacrifice of his son on the cross 2,000 years ago. Is not the purpose of every creature in the world Every single creature to reveal the greatness of the Creator. Is it not? The primary purpose of the sun, my beloved, is not to produce light and heat, although we like it. The primary purpose of that glorious sun that rises every morning is to magnify the power and glory of God. The primary purpose when you walk out at night and you look look up at a starlit sky and you are in awe of the constellations, and you stand there and you ponder the distance and the power and the galaxies and the universe. The primary purpose of that was not celestial navigation, which you don't use much anymore. It was to bring an understanding to you, those creating the image of God, the magnificence and the brilliance and the power and the beauty of God the Creator. Your primary purpose is no different. You were created in His image, you, to reveal the grace 
and the love and the glory that comes through Jesus Christ. You are here for a distinct purpose. It is to glorify God. It is to enjoy God forever. That's why he made us. And we can do that through faith in his son who saved you and redeemed you and made you new. And as new creatures, we want to live like new people, not living in accordance with the flesh, but according to the spirit, not by sight, but by faith in the word of God, according to the power of the Holy Spirit, serving the Lord faithfully all our days. Because the consummation of this great story, creation, fall, redemption, is Jesus Christ returning in all of his glory with all the angels and all those who preceded us, all the brothers and sisters. He will come back again and he's going to come to earth and he's going to establish his kingdom here. He will cast out all sin and all darkness and the light will reign and it will be, my beloved, it will be so much more glorious than Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, he created. If you are amazed by that, if that strikes in you a right sense of awe and wonder, and I pray it does, then you haven't seen anything yet. When he comes again, all of eternity, we will be in awe. Forever and ever in awe of this glorious God. If you don't know this newness, if you've heard this testimony, but you say, I'm still the old dead man or woman, then today is the day of salvation. I call you, the scriptures command you to live. The scriptures command you this morning to recognize that you're not a product of cosmic chance. You're not here because of random point mutations. You are here because God the creator made you. And he made you to know him. He made you to be loved by him. He made you to come into his presence to enjoy him forever. You have a glorious purpose. If you do not know that, you say, I'm still dead. Then this morning, know Christ. Know faith. See him as God. See your sins. Come before him in humility and confess them to God and ask to be forgiven. He will forgive you. He will forgive you and he will put his righteousness upon you. And he will bring you into his kingdom. And he will promise you that both now and forever. My beloved, there is no greater mistake that you can make than to miss the eternal joy and satisfaction of God. No greater mistake you can make than to miss God. And if you do know him and you are, you, you are a new creature, then I pray that you would spend this Sunday and the next few that we look at this becoming raptured by God's glory and God's love. See his glory manifest in your life. See the love poured out upon the cross for you and then reflect that back to him. Love him in return and glorify him in return and you will become the servant that you want to be. You'll become the servant the Bible calls us to be. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would forgive us this morning for being a people who oftentimes live more like that five-year-old, either denying your existence or putting our love and allegiance in a false God and not you, the creator of the heavens and the earth. 
I pray, Lord, that you would be gracious with us this morning and our brothers and sisters around the world that we might even today have a better understanding of who you truly are. You are the creator, that you spoke and all things came into being, that you personally made us, that you did indeed sew us together in our mother's womb and we belong to you. Give us the sense, Father, to know your word that we might live in accordance with it. Give us a right desire to know Christ as Savior and rejoice in the great work that he's done on our behalf. We pray, Father, for our hearts and minds to be rekindled with this great truth of who you are. We want to see your glory. and We want to know your love, that we might be a people that reflect it rightly to one another and to the world. We want our light to shine before men in such a way that they will, in fact, see our good deeds and glorify you forever and ever. You are most worthy. Lord, elevate yourself in our hearts and minds. Raise yourself up as only you can, that we might see truth and see you. I thank you for those you've gathered here this morning, Lord. I pray that as we prepare our hearts and minds to receive communion, that we would see the great sacrifice that was made by Christ to bring us back in, to restore a fallen creation and make things right. Humble us now, Lord, as we take the juice that represents his blood and the bread that represents his broken body in remembrance of him. I pray these things in Christ's name, amen.